Welcome, everyone. We have the wonderful Helena Norberg-Hodge with us for our Wisdom Hour today. Hello, Helena. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining us. So lucky. We are so, so lucky, everyone, to have this living legend on the call with us and a beloved friend of mine. <laughs> Helena, hey, thank you so much. We, we, um, we just feel very fortunate that we can all sit in a room with you today for an yeah. hour. I feel so happy that you're doing what you're doing in Australia and leading the way to the new economy, to the local, back where we belong, to the earth, to community. Beautiful. So I'm very happy to be here. Hmm. I, um, I just, um, before Nath welcomes us in properly, I just want to acknowledge that, like, I'm, I'm, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of suffering in the world today. and. Um, it feels like uh, it's travelling It's traveling fast through us and um, we're all highly sensitised and um, I just want to acknowledge solidarity with all those seeking peace and um, seeking to rebuild our world from this moment that we're in. Uh, I have a lot of friends in the US at the moment, so I was personally, I'm sure everyone on this call was, ringing and emailing and texting to make sure everyone is okay um in a very not okay time so i just wanted to acknowledge that before we begin um talking about how we remake the world with one of the best thinkers on that topic so um it's a perfect way to spend our lunch time and also nathan and i are gonna we're gonna open the session like we normally do with a meditation we're gonna ground ourselves and arrive okay so let's um find a comfortable position wherever you are, maybe closing down the eyes if you feel okay to do so. And relaxing into your body. So coming into a nice, easy, natural rhythm with your breath. And doing uh, a scan of the body now. Check in with how you're feeling today. And bringing some softness, trying to bring some softness to wherever you're holding tension in your body right now. Letting everything settle.
and calling to mind something or someone who you're feeling grateful for, you're feeling gratitude for in this moment. Let that gratitude fill your body. Let it ground you. And gently bringing yourself back to the space. Settling in for our conversation. So, Helena, we, um, we always begin our chats with a, with a check-in to see how you're doing. And I'd love to hear also how, how the past few months of lockdown have been for you and how you've been processing this. Yeah, we've been, we've been just so blessed to be in Byron. We had in the first month the most amazing weather and we were able to go to the beach to do the lighthouse walk every day. And my husband has a chronic illness, which is very difficult. It's chronic fatigue and it's been going on for now, I hate to even say it's more than 25 years, 26 years. We've been together 43 years. So more than half our time together, and it's been very up and down. We had two years at one point where he was almost completely well. And with this scare of the pandemic, uh, he and I just did everything to try, because with this compromised immune system, he was more vulnerable, so we just... But all these antivirals, and he started taking tons of vitamin C and doing saunas, and, and as a consequence, much better. So we've actually been having a really lovely time, mm. and I do feel a bit guilty. Like Barry was saying, I also have friends in America, particularly in New York, and my closest friend actually lives there. And it's been, I just spoke to her yesterday, and it's been hard. And whereas Eve Ensler, who I just mentioned, she's moved out and lives in the country and has been blissfully happy. And I, I yeah, so among many of the issues that I might not remember to touch on later is that I really hope that this will actually help to fuel a movement back to smaller towns and cities, because that's what this planet needs. So, because uh, I'm generally finding that my friends who are able to be in, in smaller places and closer to nature haven't suffered nearly so much as people in the city. So we've been blessed. And then, you know, about, what is it now, five weeks ago, I decided that all our conferences, we do international conferences, and I decided to do this big event on the web. So for the last five weeks, I've been under a lot of pressure and feeling the stress a bit, trying not to, but, but other than that, um, I'm very, very happy about the response. It's an amazing response. 
and to discover like the whole world is becoming localist. I mean, it's just a, it's been a remarkable, remarkable benefit out of this terrible pandemic. Helena, I think that for those on the call who don't know your secret code to well-being, can you yeah. can you articulate what you've been talking about since you lived on the plateaus of the Himalayas in the seventies? Can you articulate what is localization? What is your life's work been been pushing for? And also, if you can give that amazing picture you give of globalization and why it kind of needed to be broken and where to from here? Yeah. So I was quite a normal person, not a raging activist, till I was invited to go out to this unknown place called Ladakh, which is West Tibet, but it belongs politically to India. And I was living in Paris. I spoke a lot of languages. I was very cosmopolitan and loved nature and so on, but I was not an activist. And I went out thinking I'd be there for six weeks, but uh, being a linguist, I picked up a lot of the language as part of helping to make a film. And I just felt completely in love with these people who were among the very, very few unwounded people on this planet, untraumatized, unwounded, and just radiantly, vitally joyous. I just found the most remarkable sense of humor. I found the most remarkable alert wit and intelligence and status of women much higher than in my native country of Sweden. I wouldn't say necessarily perfect, but much, much higher because of the structures of the way of life, which is something that took me years to discover. But having come in contact with these people, I basically left my, well, at first I was staying on to work on the language. As a Westerner, I wouldn't have just said, oh, this is a paradise, I'll stay. And I sought out Chomsky, and Noam Chomsky was very supportive, and I was basically going to be doing a PhD with him on the language. Then I realized I'd be the only person in the world who could read my, really read my thesis and understand it, because I was combining his theories with Ladakhi. And so I decided to leave that behind. And ever since that time, I've ended up not only campaigning and trying all around the world, mainly through public speaking, to raise awareness about the need for a combination of decentralizing economic activity and increasing urgently, dramatically, holistic, interdisciplinary, systemic thinking and knowledge. And that these go hand in hand. And I discovered in this place, Koladak, not only the, the happiest people I had ever encountered, but in there were so many reasons that, you know, it would take me too long to go through all of them, but there's sort of a recipe, you know, like the 10 key steps to happiness. And, you know, one of the first ones is intergenerational community, close connections, particularly intergenerationally. And, and that also in and of itself is a huge boost for women and the feminine because in those intergenerational communities, even five-year-old brothers will carry the baby. The 80-year-old uncle will carry the baby. The baby gets this amazing wealth of attention and open arms, and the men get a good dose of the hormones that allow them to keep their feminine. So there's a, you know, another of the many things was constant movement. You know, no one was spending the whole day sitting. Another lesson was a spiritual path where 
we integrate that shifting into the right side of the brain by stopping the chattering mind. And we can do that literally as we speak to people. The Ladakis will be talking to you and saying, you know, where have you been today? Oh, you've been talking to Eva Ensler, have you? Oh, my Padmahum. What's Eva Ensler like? Oh, my Padmahum. And literally in the moment, moving in and out of that with the breath and allowing the brain to rest and essentially allowing the right brain to have some space. And I've just discovered recently that these traditional cultures we're also stimulating the vagus nerve on a regular basis through that chanting. So it's just like this, for me, it's my sort of Bible. It's where I now think about everything, you know, what can create greater health and sanity for people and the planet. And that was Ladakh. And that was, on this World Organization Day, I'm not going to start off with Ladakh because I worry that most of the world is not ready for that. I will include it, but I worry if I hold that up, it'll be, oh, this is just too weird and too, we can't possibly go back to living like tribals. And, and I think that over these 45 years that I've been engaged in Ladakh, I think I've discovered you know, the key, like I said, some of the key recipes and structures, and they are structures that, that oblige us to turn the I to a we, which is one of the fundamental aspects also of being healthier is feeling a part of a human-scale community. That's a building block for children, for all people, for feeling appreciated, held, loved, connected, fearless. And the fear comes out of being cut off and isolated and feeling like nobody, feeling like we're not worth anything, we've got to prove ourselves. And then we're being bombarded with images through the global system that constantly tell us that we are nobody. If we don't go into that urban rat race, if we don't become essentially white Western consumers with huge success, big cars, perfect beauty, you know, plastic surgery, the whole thing, we are nobody. And the people who arrive up there in that supposed paradise often end up coming back to the world and telling us, wait a minute, that was the loneliest, most traumatic place I've ever been. I felt cut off. I felt I knew that no one knew me for who I am. So there's so much evidence now about the coming back to life, to connection, to real flesh, flesh and blood human beings whom we know more intimately. And that's sort of one of the key lessons for me from Ladakh. But it includes also with the, the deeper connections. The, I, I, well, I, I, it's too much. I hope you read Ancient Futures. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just, I put that in the chat. Um, yeah. I remember when we met, I read Ancient Futures. And I know everyone's got a big pile of books and you can feel like you're never going to get through them. Um, put Ancient Futures on the top there um it's a fabulous read it's actually um i found it one of the easiest most um uh digestible ways of understanding the globalized economy and then the localized possibilities even though it's told through as you said an idyllic kind of tribal context it really the way that you talk about it was really moving for me so um i was talking recently to someone (laughs) I know we're all feeling the shockwaves of the collapse of the economy and um, there's a guy, this is going to sound terrible, I can't believe I'm going to say this in a room full of people, but 
Um, there's a guy called Dr. Doom and he is an economist. He's a Harvard economist and he is a, he's sort of a, a futurist. He's a trend uh, predictor in economic terms. He's a Harvard professor. And a lot of people have been talking about the V, the way the economy is going to behave like a V. It's going it's to crash and then it's going to lift in a V shape. Dr. Doom, our dear friend, what a terrible name, um, is saying it's going to be an L. So it's going to crash and flatline for a while. And so a lot of people find that really frightening and it is really frightening because we've all been relying, um, Helena, you've often said to me, on a system where wild salmon from Norway is shipped to China to be deboned and then shipped back to Norway to back to Norway to be sold in the supermarkets. So clearly we've become a parody of ourselves. We're living inside such broken meta structures and they're collapsing, but that's really scary. And what we're seeing in the US is how that can collapse on multiple levels, economic and then political, social, cultural. So what do you see when you when you are bearing witness to that having lived in the space that you've been in for so many decades, where to from here and what do you see as the medicine? Well, I think first, you know, you said before, say something about globalization, and I, I became very aware in Ladakh of this essentially global economy, which was imposing itself around the world, and that means in every last crevice. I saw it later on, not just on the Tibetan Plateau, I saw it in Mongolia, I saw it with the Maasai, I saw it with people in South America. Every yurt, every hut now with a television, destroying self-esteem, destroying local knowledge. And part of the problem was that schooling was a tool, a big hook, that essentially told people, you put your children in school, they'll get a job in the city, so send them to school as quickly as possible. So these are... Things that are quite shocking for most Westerners, and as you know, someone trying to raise awareness about this has not been easy. In fact, I had to take this section on schooling out of our film, The Economics of Happiness, because people just weren't ready for it. I think today we're dealing with such dire emergency, and I just so I hope people are ready to hear this. And that means, you know, the combination of questioning but also understanding that the global economy is literally like a, a giant machine lifting the entire human race into the city. And its latest manifestation includes things like educated, well-intentioned economic experts, like recently in England, someone named Tim Learning, reporting to the Treasury in England, farming only contributes 1% to GDP. Let's stop farming in England. Let's be like Singapore. Let's import all our food. Now, this is a good man. He's probably very good to his family. He's probably kind and means the best for humanity. But he is so blind. He is so removed from the realities on the ground. So we, are, we need to understand that we're dealing with a blindness in the leadership. And we need to understand that that fundamental structure of continuing with a hundred rapid urbanizing path is going to sink the entire planet. And right now with COVID, we're standing at this fork where if we're not careful, we'll be supporting this path, which includes now replacing people on the land with robots linked to satellites and drones to measure carbon. So there's quite a lot of rethinking we need to do to prevent 
actually supporting a path which is disastrous. There is a path going on right now back to the land. And it is a path that, you know, I'm just so thrilled to see it from Beijing, from Mumbai, from all over the world, people who've tasted the high-rise, totally isolated living, cut off from life, cut off from other people, are beginning to develop a thirst for nature, a thirst for community. The beauty of it is, too, that as people develop that taste, they're actually developing structures within the city. They're understanding we can organize ourselves in the city to be more interdependent in a human-scale way. We can support community gardens, and we can connect with the farms around the region, around our city, and start shortening those distances. Because as Barry was saying, it's not just salmon from Alaska, it's uh, scallops from Tazia flown to China to be peeled and flown back again. Nuts from Byron are flown to be cracked open and flown back again. So there's a little bit of, you know, what I'm seeing is um, a need for what I call big picture activism, that one of the most important activisms is to just pause a bit, which COVID has allowed us to do, to pause a bit, to start coming away with the question, what can I do to make my life better and the life of, you know, the planet? And we believe that this path towards localizing economic activity while widening our perspective to the bigger picture, that holistic willingness to become a counter-expert, to become an unexpert. I'm so worried. I mean, I talk to journalists, and they say, no, 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 that, if I say that, it would just be considered opinion. I can't be editorializing. We don't realize how brainwashed we have become to remain little cogs in a specialized view because we're not allowed to transcend boundaries of thinking. I, you know, I know this fabulous professor of philosophy, Chinese, but he's got a chair at the University of Berkeley, he's got a chair in Beijing. He says to me, Helena, I completely agree with you, but I'm not an economist. You know, so we need to be brave now. We need to just have courage to be human and to trust our gut and our hearts, our bodies, and Look for that bigger picture and don't, whatever you do, think you have to study economics to understand what's going on. Last thing you want to do, it's a discipline that has been based on wrong assumptions about human nature and about nature from the very beginning. Fundamental to that system is it is the worst thing you can do to protect your environment, to protect your jobs, and to diversify your economy. It's been the enemy of local economies from the very beginning because it's been an extractive system that Eve Ensler now calls the Patrix instead of the Matrix, which is quite good. Yeah, I was going to ask about um, where in the world right now we're seeing these human-scale economies being done well um, as kind of models for us to, to lean into. Do you have any? Very interestingly, I would say that probably more than anywhere it's in America. And my theory about that is that it's in America that the government became, well, from its inception virtually, never provided the sort of protection that governments, for instance, Australia, Scandinavia, and even Britain provided a certain security protecting 
people from the ravages of the patriarchs or of this global, I don't like to just say capitalism, but the critique of capitalism generally is not ecological enough. It's not spiritual enough. What, we're, what I'm really talking about is learning from indigenous culture about our deep spiritual, physical, emotional roots uh, in community and nature and recovering those. And, um, and health, you know, health of ecosystems and people and joy and happiness, you know, vibrant culture. We're talking about reconnecting in a way that really creates that vibrancy. So paradoxically, in America, I would say, you know, Portland is one of the hubs in the world. Um, my close colleague in our organization is in Vermont. Vermont is a pocket for a lot of this. But, but all across the country, there are little hubs. But England is also fairly advanced and, you know, now in Australia, later on, it started later in Australia, um, if you start putting on different lenses and you look for this difference between the more revitalized new local versus the old local, the old local of existing traditional communities and peoples living generally in more rural areas, very often there are people who have been marginalized and who have become, you know, marginalized for generations. And often when we try to promote localization, one of our problems is that people have only experienced that, marginalized small communities, small towns, and they they go, I don't want to live there. It's in the city I found tolerance and vibrancy and ah. live culture. And why? Because all of the wealth, all of the creativity, all of the, you know, bright and young and creative have gone to the city because it's been pulling them to the city. Now, once we start seeing even Byron Bay as a very important worldwide hub, coming back right now to Eve Ansley, because I just happened to be talking to her an hour ago, but, you know, she said, what, Byron Bay? Like, Byron Bay is like her capital of the world for enlightened women who are coming together to do things. So there are these hubs, uh, and I can't point to any one hub where all the various tools that we could use have come together. And that requires money. It requires people who are willing to subsidize and support and help create a new engine a new engine of regeneration instead of an engine of destruction. And it's this, once you get the wheels turning, they start spinning off each other and you start creating not just greater wealth, but you're creating that interdependence of structures that are more human scale and slower. It takes time to love. It takes time to nurture. It takes time to be known. It takes time to be recognized for who you are, and that's what our children and we all need to feel whole and brave and connected. So it's it's this slow, it's slowing down, it's scaling down, and it's going to require the awareness of all the various things that are going on around the world. Some of which we try to include in the issue of Dumb Feather, but of course we need to do a, you know, we need to do a. a many, many issues. And perhaps later on, we could think about collaborating on doing 
you know, one issue just on local food, one just on local energy, one just on local finance, one on local business alliances. Mm. Um, and mm. also, yeah. The decentralization of the economy is just like obviously a really good idea because the first thing to break in the pandemic was the globalized economy. The ships couldn't go, the planes weren't flying. Uh, you know, we've been held up in Australia unbelievably, fortunately, by what still um, held, which was like the social fabric, fabric that kind of bubbled up to the politics, um, which was remarkable. I, I didn't expect to see it again, but it was like the Australia of my childhood where we, where we understood that we needed a social sort of safety net. Um, and I think difficult ideas need to be um, brought into forums so that we are not riven by the guilt and the horror and the suffering, but we keep engaging. So whatever keeps you engaged and keeps you connected is a good thing. Whatever, like, keeps you paralysed on the couch in a, in a whirlpool of shame, not a good thing. I think that's a, a really um, basic litmus test. And in Byron Bay, when we were living there with, luckily, people like Helena as our neighbours, which, you know, so remarkable, it is a bit like the Twilight Zone in Byron Bay, but... We've done pretty cool things and been a part of really cool things like decentralising our energy, decentralising our water, um, decentralising our health system and creating like stronger and stronger neighbourhood fibrous connections. And also, Helena, you would always say, I'm off to my choir today, I'm off to my singing group, I'm off to my drumming group. I'm doing those things where that are very embodied in your local community and bring a lot of joy, the joy fibres and the human connections. So. It's and I, also that I want to say one other thing, having touched that very touchy issue, that the other thing that I've seen so clearly is that when people are more interdependent with each other and therefore have a closer relationship with, say, Mohammed, who owns the fish shop, this prejudice of the label, oh, Muslims, they're dangerous, and, you know, they have to rid our country, it falls away. You know, it doesn't mean that someone might not have an argument with Muhammad or that there might not be also a conflict, but it's a completely different thing. Prejudice arises out of the lack of experience of the individual, of the uniqueness of the human individual, not the label, not the Americans we all dislike or the you know, Muslims we're all afraid of, and now it's the Chinese. We become unique individuals. And that, again, it connects completely back to the fact that then we also become seen and, and appreciated for who we are, not the color of our skin, not the, our religion or our race. So this, again, is and I'm trying to encourage that by looking more holistically, we'll be looking at these amazing structural benefits of this slowing down and connecting. We'll be moving away from this politics of identity, which is so divisive right now. Instead, let's look at what can we do together to change? How can we cooperate together? Young, old, different skin colors, different uh, economic background. How can we collaborate to create something that serves us? And this is another lesson I learned from the traditional culture, how amazing it is when the good of the group is so obviously aligned completely with what's good for me. It's just a remarkable gift. And you just wouldn't believe how many benefits come out of that. 
I mean, I know I'm, you know, I'm probably overselling, and I, um, and as I say, there's this complexity that right now in sort of, you know, many rural and local communities, you, you won't find what I'm talking about. You'll find it in more ancient indigenous cultures, and you'll find it in the sort of new local. And I don't, now I'm going to be accused of sort of, you know, dissing every existing traditional local community. I, I don't mean it that way, but there is a pattern. Mm. Can I ask, Barry, you, you might also know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking my questions because I want to know the, the how-to, and especially as we start to reintegrate um, back into the world, and I personally am feeling a deep desire to resist being seduced by the great machine. <laughs> and, I, you know, I've, like many people over these past three months, have really come to reprioritise and, and see what's essential. And so I feel this yearning to move to what's, what's local. And, uh, and, and I'm interested in, in these examples that you shared before, Barry, about the decentralising of energy in, in Byron and, and how those things came about and, you know, what is the... I know. Well, I'm, I'm like Helena knows... Honestly, like call your neighbours and your friends and, and definitely your friends into your living rooms. We're allowed to have 10 people in our living rooms now. <laughs> and I, I reckon 10 is a sweet number. Exactly. Um, and I would sit in a circle with beloved neighbours or if they're not beloved, then get to know them real fast and decentralise, a, you know, a kind of, a known area um, get, I mean, you'll see in the next issue of Dumbo Feather, I hope it's really empowering for everybody. I interviewed a guy in Froome in the UK who Helen and Oisen put us onto who has got a book called Flat Pack Democracy. They were a whole lot of concerned citizens, intergenerational. Um, I think it has to be intergenerational, so beware of getting the same people around the circle. Make sure you've got various generational voices around the circle and um, but you are starting, I think, with your neighbourhood or you're starting with your street um, and get them in your living room with an agenda. The idea sure. of getting together and having a conversation around how can we share solar in this street? How can we um, get council members on our local council? It's, it's coming down to that at this point where it's sort of like a take back our streets, take back our municipalities um, because that model works incredibly well. In Europe, there are a lot of communities. I know in Germany, the municipalities are somewhere around 600,000 people per municipality and they are empowered to determine their energy, water, um, governance, etc. And it is the same size as the country of Bhutan. And when I knew that, when I went to Bhutan and I realised, and I was there actually with a German guy who was the mayor of his municipality, and he said, yes, our municipality is the same size as Bhutan. So I've come to learn gross national happiness, I come to learn about how I can apply that to our municipality of 600,000. And that's another thing, not measuring GDP as a sign of how we're doing because if the economy for the next five to ten years is going to be an L shape, not a V, and we're orienting towards GDP, we're, and I mean up here, because we will start to think that everything is broken and we are doomed. But who is the we? And if we don't know who the we is, the we starts in our, in our homes, in our streets and in our neighbourhoods. It must um, to become to love, beloved to that community. And if you don't feel beloved to that community, find one where you do so that you can bring an aliveness to your contribution to the place where you live and love. And I also want to say, for me, the joy of um, working with Helena 
and and being in relationship with Helena is when our elders show up, when when all the generations are showing up to kind of weave the wisdom together, it it becomes really dynamic and interesting and the clash of identity politics and the clash of competition. The competition for who's got the narrative. It's like millennials do not have the way out. But neither do the baby boomers. But like together we kind of have the way out. And um, and I just keep seeing this over and over again. And I also see that if I'm in circles of unexpected members, so if there's a CEO of a bank, a midwife, an artist, um, et cetera, et cetera, if all these different kind of like a mother, full-time mom, a, a uni student, if we're all, that starts to get super, super interesting and your brain kind of explodes because you're not talking to everyone who agrees with you and, you know, we can't see three-dimensionality from our one lens and that's what localization also means. It's a presence and a proximity to what is and the voices that are present where you are. So I would say, I would add to that, that, you know, in localization, uh, there's a principle of subsidiarity and that means always try to do things at the lowest level possible because at that level, is where things can be so much more flexible, so much more responsive to the incredible diversity of life. Every unique individual, every every single plant, every single leaf of every tree, unique and different. So small scale for nature and for human really work. So then as we build more complex systems, you know, we're getting into this industrial way of doing things, which we need when it comes to technology, but absolutely not when it comes to how we farm our children or our chickens. We don't want industrial mass production because that's a killer. So, yeah, the, so the scale is very fundamental. But I would say subsidiarity would mean that you might want to try as you come out of lockdown or even before to talk to your immediate neighbours. But I want to make a very strong point. You may find that there isn't very much movement there. You may well find that those immediate neighbors are actually quite anti what you're trying to say they're very locked into the listening to the to the patriarchs so then i would say go to the next level you know so i would what we've been advising people to do for many many years is to find a group of people within as close proximity as you can and some of our friends who have started homeschooling systems that's been a question of like an hour's drive apart but 10 families have shared the homeschooling that way so that it became, you know, a quite doable and easy thing to do. Or if you want to set up an energy scheme or a local food scheme, probably the actual street might be too small a unit anyway. So just reach out. And what, what we recommend is holding up sort of a flag. Like you might want to show a film, like I would recommend our film, The Economics of Happiness. Or hopefully our program, which I hope is going to be all right uh, on the 21st of June, to see if people are interested. And then, or the Dumbo feather issue, you know, how interested are you in pursuing this line of inquiry? And can we come together on a regular basis to look at what we can do together? Now, I suggest as part of the big picture activism that one of the first actions is a greater consciousness of the map that we're dealing with. Because the map, once you're connected to the localization movement, you have a reason to feel inspired every single day. 
in my inbox, I get good news stories as much as I get bad news stories. And I'm choosing, you know, I don't read all the mainstream media because they're all saying the same thing anyway, telling us what Mr. Trump thinks and what a few, you know, out of touch people are thinking. But so I'm getting as much good news, if not more, every day. And so it's a question of a bit of a pause. It's a little bit of that taking that breath and being say, willing to say, yeah, I've got to rethink a lot of things. I've got to be willing to question, you know, A to Z or what I've been trained to believe. And one of those things is the expertise that only the experts know. And, you know, when it comes to psychology, our experts have never studied a healthy society. They don't know what a healthy society looks like. So as they try to look at a healthy individual out of context, they're missing a lot of the point of what's now being awakened through the localization movement, where actually they're starting to realize that the best, the best medicine is actually community connected to nature. And there are all these, uh, you know, thousands, millions probably of examples of why that's the recipe to heal us deeply spiritually, psychologically. So try to reach out perhaps a little more broadly and get a, a group of people who are very different but at least on the same page in terms of being willing to rethink and really wanting to take action. Helena, you're such a legend. You're such a treasure. You're a global treasure. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your dedication. Thank you for your love and care and advice to all of us. Thank you. And thank you. You are a treasure, as many people recognize, so I'm so happy to be collaborating and lots of love to all of you. And <laughs> and stay tuned for what Small Giants is about to release, a really exciting program of Next Economy conversations and masterclasses with global leaders and thinkers. So that's going to be really epic. Um, you can look out for that in the next couple of weeks. We'll start spreading the news. Lots Hi. of love. Lots of love. Thank you, everyone. Love you guys.